Interior. Night. Recording studio. Two redheads begin pre-show warm-ups. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. Jack, write that you gargle your water or something. Jack gargles some water. And then put that we say, welcome to Script Shop. Who? Me or you? Mm-hmm. You say it. Welcome to Script Shop. N- no, but like, really, say it. Like, right now. Like, right now. Let's go for it. Welcome to Scrimshaw. No, Jack. Top. <laughs> Omaha. No, Jack. Welcome to Script Shop. Script Shop Show is back on your speaker and listening device. Hi there, my name is Jack, and I have very specific feelings about punctuation and turn signals. <laughs> Hi, this is Allison. Welcome to Script Shop, and I have very specific feelings about Jack. Well, <laughs> this went to a. So, this is the podcast that we do. Sometimes more sweaty than other times. Uh, And we talk to screenwriters about their work and their screenplays and what it means to them and where it came from. Right. And just in case anybody's wondering, of course I love Jack. Yeah, sure. The other day, Frank, Jack and I were at a bar. This was a Tuesday. I was bartending. Jack got off work at 10 p.m. and came to sit at my bar until we closed. So Jack comes to my bar. He hangs out. He hangs out while we close. And then we go to the Bramble Patch. One of my favorite places on the planet. Which is already more of a night than I was planning on having. Right. Jack was like, oh, I'm not going out. But then I was like, Jack, come out. I'm a new mom now. Right. And so. <laughs> this is a great argument. Yeah. <laughs> so we went out. Jack bought me two drinks, mm-hmm. which was so nice for you, Jack. You're welcome. And I had the best freaking time because Philip had the baby. And he had already got Philip, your husband. Philip, my husband, had the you baby. you had a baby not with. Not somebody who just took the baby and had her. Right. He had the baby at home. She was asleep. I got the go ahead to go out. I went out for one hour. Our friend Kathy Ann rubbed my shoulders and I melted yeah. at the bar. Jack bought me two drinks and I had like the most heart eyes emoji time over that. Well, and it was really sweet too because you were, I, I felt like your plan was to maybe be out for a bit longer, but then I think you started thinking about the little one back home and I you sort of at one point were just like, okay, well, you know what? Uh, I gotta go. You, you Bye. I'm gonna go see my baby right now. <laughs> well, she's so great. It was very sweet. She's way great. So that's why I have specific feelings about Jack, obviously. Well, that's very nice. So, um, Script Shop, where Jack and I love there. each other and love Frank. If Frank sometimes gives us the middle finger, which he did right before this show. Or the thumbs up, depending the, on what you want to call you it. You know, whatever. And uh, we talked to screenwriters about their screenplays and why they wrote them and what it means to them and what their history is as a screenwriter. And basically just draw out everything that we can about why they are doing this thing that they do. Yeah. Go do the voodoo that you do. And if you have done some voodoo that you want to send to us, the ways that you can do that are on scriptshopshow.com slash submit. We are also taking your submissions on filmfreeway.com. In addition to those websites, we are uh, also active on various forms of social media, not limited to, but including, actually just limited to, (laughs) Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can communicate with us that way. Tell us what you think. uh, Respond to various musings that we may have when we are online at any given time of the day. Right. And uh, if you, you know, you just did your taxes, you got a great tax return, you feel like sending us some money, Mm. go to patreon.com, look up Script Shop Show, and uh, send us some some moolah to keep the show going strong. Sure. Um, If you also have submissions and you're interested in doing new things with them, you can send them to the Sendependent Film Festival. This is is such a big deal. Which is taking place August 23rd, 24th, 25th in Cincinnati, Ohio with additional activities for filmmakers August 22nd and 26th. This is something that you have been creating and working on for months, if not years at this point, honestly, whether or not it was just in your own head or whether you were interacting with others about it. The metaphor, the metaphor of the conversation. And at this point, honestly, it's all three of us working on it in addition to the rest of the team because we've all been, you know, trying to make it happen now for months. And it's going to happen. It's going to be amazing. Three days at the Woodward Theater in Cincinnati's historic Over the Rhine neighborhood, August 23rd, 24th, and 25th. Whether you have anything to submit or whether you just want to come out and watch some movies, you should come to the Sindependent Film Festival. Go to sindependentfilmfest.org for more information to buy tickets or submit your film ASAP. And... 
with all that business out of the way, mm. Jack, I just want to ask, what have you been reading lately? Well, so I was inspired recently, uh, not that long ago. Uh, the you know I'm a comic book guy. Yeah. The third. I'm sorry. What he likes? I know it's a it's a it's a huge what? shock as a a white male in his 30s. I've a got nerd? a bit of an affinity to comic books. It's really I'm really outside the box. Do you on this. remember when I was talking about you wearing your undies? Wearing Yes, when I'm reading my nerdy stuff. Yes, I've spoken with my therapist about that a lot, and I thought I had gotten past it, but clearly I'm not there. Okay, great. So, comics. Not that long ago, there was a third Thor movie that came out. Of course, Marvel is just cranking out money making movie after money making movie. The third Thor movie is completely bonkers. It's incredible that the movie exists. It's so wild. Taika Watiti directed it, uh, the guy who did. Uh, the vampire movie, what the heck was it called? Out of the Shadows. He did uh, Hunt for the Wilder People. I was going to say Twilight. No, That's the that. only one I know. No, no, well, no, no, there's no. the Tom Cruise one. Those are the only two vampire movies I it's, know. It's a crazy, bonkers, funny, colorful comic book movie that Thor is in. And a lot of it is based on not only Jack Kirby's work back in the 60s, but also what Walt Simonson did with the Thor books, uh, I want to say probably in the 80s. And ever since that movie came out, I've been rereading my Thor collections that Walt Simonson, and I'm not sure if if Louise Simonson was involved in it or not, but it's real bonkers, wild, cosmic, imaginative stuff, and I cannot recommend either Thor Ragnarok or any of Walt Simonson's uh, comics enough. Are they different than other type things? It's just a little. It's 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 a lot more like embracing how wacky things can be. When you, I mean, when you're writing anything, you can be as imaginative as you want. But right. I think comics, sort of, afford, especially superhero comics, affords you just this. You can just embrace weirdness and the Thor books especially back then really did that with, with these weird sort of alien characters Thor is kind of flying around in space and when when yeah, the writers true. and the artists let their imaginations run wild they, it, it, it can really pay off great and so much of Walt Simonson's run on that book back then was like that it was fantastic you know what's funny is that as a non-comic book person mm. I've seen snippets of Thor cartoons throughout my whole life mm. and I never got them, and I thought that I didn't get them because I just didn't know what was going on, but he was always in space, mm-hmm. and that was actually what was going on. It was just weird. Yeah. That's awesome. It is weird, and that's the point to that, a certain extent. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, Reading-wise, what yes. might you be doing? Okay, so um, I'm obsessed with this group called All Them Witches, and it's a musical group. and they, Like a band. Like a band, okay. yeah. You could look them up online right now and listen to their music. All Them Witches? All Them Witches. And they just have this, like... Very poetic way with lyrics. Uh And, uh, of course, good musicians marry their music with their lyrics, and it's all music. And I've just been obsessed with, like, reading their lyrics and getting through them and trying to figure out what their different albums are about and kind of... Just building the heartbeat of them per album. Per is me. there like an overarching sort of theme per album? Are, are they telling a story or is it more about individual songs or sometimes both? Well, it's I think or it's, neither. I think it's both. Like sometimes things add up to one big thing, but it can be very personal. So I hear a lot of like love, love songs and love stories and mm-hmm. especially their live album in Brussels, which I've been going through a lot lately. I've never heard of these guys. All them witches. All them witches. They came through Cincy through the Woodward, um, I guess, last year. Hmm. Um, I'll play some for you in the break. Yeah, we should. They're great. And uh, maybe if you want to hit, well, you shouldn't hit pause. You shouldn't. I shouldn't encourage <gasps> you to hit pause. But if you want to, if th- that's the nice thing about the internet, right? You can hit pause, listen to this, and then come back and know Allison that much more, and know where she's coming from yeah. that much more. Thanks, Jack. That's a wonderful thing. So we didn't even say we have Amy on the show yet. Yeah, we have a guest today, as oh we do gosh. here on the show. Oh, Sorry, we got what's all wrong with us. I, got, I was talking about Thor. It happens. Okay, so today on the show we have an amazing writer. Amy McCorkle, who has sent us a short script. It's a 30-page, I have written, post-apocalyptic man's world script. Mm. Um, It's kind of underground, railroad-esque. It's on the brink of revolution. And Amy, who is a novelist, is going to talk to us today about her work as a screenplay writer. Yeah, I think it's cool. I always like it when we have people on who have written, say, traditional books and prose and that sort of thing and then make the transition over to to screenwriting you're going from one medium to another yeah and the things that sort of have to change between those things yeah pressing expanding all that jazz yeah so we're going to talk to amy about rise yes her script rise should we talk to amy right now let's do it hi amy are you there yes i am hi amy thanks for coming on the show well thank you for having me so amy you are a novelist you've written uh, from your bio, it seems tons of books. Tell us a little bit about your history as a writer. 
Well, I started off, I mean, I was in college and I was majoring in theater arts because I didn't have enough money to go to film school. And I didn't really know what direction to go. I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to get there. And I took some creative writing courses and I wrote novels. I pretty much self-taught through reading and and having, you know, taking English classes. And I just kind of felt my way around. Nobody taught me how to do it. They gave me word limits. So I would set goals for myself and go from there. Um, my first contract, my, my first legit publishing contract uh, with a small press did not come until I was 35 years old. Mm-hmm. So, and that had a lot to do with health reasons too. So I got my first publication contract and when I was 35 and I signed three contracts in the same year for what different do, stories. What I do you did. think was the difference? Like why that year did you get three contracts? Um, honestly, I don't know. Um, I was getting better. I had bipolar disorder. So when I had my breakdown, when I was 24 years old, um, everything, I basically was left alone to write on my own. And it was a lot, probably because I didn't get it right. And I wrote a short novel, it was 50,000 words. And a lot of small presses, that's, that's kind of a sweet spot link where I was submitting. And I went to, I was suggested, someone suggested I go to an online writing co- conference, and it was called Digicon, and it was held by Savvy Authors. And I submitted, and I called it my James Bond for women, like the Lafayette Nikita, Girl with Dragon Tattoo kind of, mm-hmm. kind of mashup. Ew. It was like romantic suspense. And I was a big fan of the 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 James Bond reboot. I'm a huge movie fan. So I read a lot. I don't read as much as I used to because the bipolar disorder makes it difficult to sit still and to focus. So movies are easier to sit through for me because there's one compact time and it's not like demanding I sit there and focus, 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 focus. So I started, movies inspired me to go after my writing dream. I guess I just kept writing and they took a chance on me and it was major league edits on the, on the first, the first book. Yeah. But um, with them, with them editing me, I found my voice and I became better and better and better at what I did. So you said, I, I, uh, Amy, I wanted to ask, you said you mentioned having a breakdown that sort of led you getting to write this sort of first book and get into the world of publishing. I don't want to make you get into things that you don't want to get into, but I mean, having a, a breakdown like that, that's a very, very, I, I would imagine, a very intense sort of feeling. Yes, what happened was is I couldn't do anything. I couldn't set the movie. The only thing I could do was write letters. Like I, they people talk about hypographia and they'll say, "Oh, I have hypographia," or "Oh, I wish I had it." No, you don't, because what hypographia is is the compulsion to write letters. And I would write letter after letter after letter, open letters to famous people. I never sent them, thank God. Wow. But I would send them. So I like one or two I would send out, and I would get an autographed photo back, and that was really cool. But it wasn't enough. You know, you know, you don't, you don't really want to make a career out of make, writing letters. However, the irony is when I when I started the healing process, when I had the breakdown, I had I went through three different doctors looking for a diagnosis. I had one tell me. It's all in your head. And I was like, well, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Thanks. In, in 2013, I started a blog and I called it Letters to Daniel, as in Daniel Craig. But it wasn't about wow. him. They were basically using, it's like set up like a Dear Diary or a Dear, Dear God 
kind of thing yeah. where I just journaled every day about what it was like to live with bipolar disorder. Wow. And it talked about my memoirs growing up having been abused as well. Yeah. And the memoir covers a lot of distance, a lot of things. And I compiled it into a novel called Letters to Daniel. And so that's how I channeled my letters compulsion. I used it as a way to break through and share my own story. But that didn't come until after Another Way to Die, which was the first book I was contracted for, No Ordinary Love, which was second, and Gladiator, The Gladiator Chronicles, which was my third book, all of them in 2011. And they those were published in the year 2012. Was it hard writing three novels within one year? Oh, God, I don't want to sound horrible. I know a lot of people who write novels say they hate me because I can write a 50,000-word novel in a month. What? Wow. Wow. Uh, it's harder for me to reach the 75K mark. 50,000 tends to be my sweet spot. If I push it, I'm comfortable with going to 60K. But... Um, the novel I'm writing now, The Guardian, is projected to go to 75K, and I've only done that one other time. Um, and I've been, someone saw a um, mock up poster I had for The Guardian, a television pilot script I had written, and I, I was sharing it on Facebook, and uh, faith based uh, um, author saw the poster. And I call The Guardian my faith-based mental health advocacy fantasy series. And I write it as a television series, but I'm also, it's not actually been produced, but let me just go to an option, just just to clarify a few things. But I decided to write it as a novel as well. So I'm writing it as a novel, and I'm writing one season's worth of um, episodes for the package. You said you're getting like some somebody. There, there's been an interest expressed in this uh, potentially being a series. Well, as well, the novel, the author who saw it. Well, there's two. the The scripts were the there is a there is a faith based content provider called Parables TV. They they are in love with the scripts, but they aren't and in, in, they don't have in house production. Mm. They just put, they just option, they just, they just distribute already made material, but they have some projects that are ready, they feel are ready to go. And when they move to that, when they transition to that in-house production, this is one of the projects under consideration. Amy, you talked about, I mean, having to cope with having bipolar disorder and your your breakdown from before, and that obviously involves talking to a lot of doctors. How big of a role does faith play in the way that you've uh, learned to deal with things over the years? Well, you know, it's funny. The way I look at it is there there is stigma absolutely everywhere, and it was at a faith-based film festival I went to, even from the people who expressed interest in the project. I don't believe God comes down from the clouds. I prayed. You can't pray mental health or mental illness away. It just doesn't work like that. Um, But I look at it like this. God gave me the knowledge to go to the people who can help me. And that's therapists, psychiatrists, and uh, and you lean on your your caregivers. That's that's how. And then then if you then meditation and prayer is a part is like a part of the overall package. Mm-hmm. Like when I go walking, where I find God is when I go walking in a park, and you just instantly connect with everything that's around you. I can actually let go of the stress and the anxiety that comes along with it. I get the same feeling when I'm writing a novel. Mm. feel like I plug into it there. Yeah. Find your peace. I have a couple of questions about your history with bipolar disorder. If you don't okay. mind talking about it. Not at all. How old were you when you were able to realize that you were struggling with 
bipolar disorder? Okay, so I was first diagnosed when I was 19, and it scared me because I didn't know what that was. The, the people they gave me that they gave me as an example were Patty Duke and Winston Churchill. I could relate to neither of these people. Yeah. Uh, you know, to me, Winston Churchill was this brilliant military and dip- and diplomat and politician, but he had a problem with the drink. And I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't use drugs, so I didn't present typically. And Patty Duke was this actress who was who was my mom's age. I couldn't relate, and it took until I was. 24 years old, five years later, and uh, and they and there was an actor on General Hospital. His name is uh, Maurice Bernard, and he's a really big mental health advocate. And he shared his story, and I had just filed my diagnosis away in my head. And when I I was 24 when I was first diagnosed, and second day when I actually got into treatment, when I actively went searching for treatment, I was 24. And it took me a while to get um, a proper diagnosis. And when they finally did give me the diagnosis, it was like, you're relieved. There's a big part of you that is so relieved because someone's telling you, this is what's wrong. Mm -hmm. This is what's going on. And this is how we're going to treat it. And I was ready because I couldn't write. I was absolutely, I had stopped writing altogether. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't sleep. I was sleeping like an hour a night. Things like footsteps on linoleum and bare feet would wake me up. The refrigerating door, refrigerator door opening would wake me up. And I will have been, I was getting one hour a night, maybe oh. tops. Wow. And when they finally, placed me on the lithobid, which was just coated lithium. They put me on that and it was like it, it was like someone had turned a light switch off in my head. All the noise just kinda calmed down. And it I you know, I did whatever they told me to do, but the mental health the mental health system in Texas when I was there the only thing that they did right was that indigent people got their medication for free. And I got my medications free while I was in Texas. And it took a while, but in May, I started seeing commercials for the movie Gladiator. And that was in 2000. Like, yeah. That sounds right. 1999, 2000, maybe. And, uh, and it just stories started popping into my head hmm. and it was, I mean, I wrote a story and it absolutely sucked. It was terrible, but I was so grateful <laughs> just to be writing again mm-hmm. that I just kept writing. It was, you know, no matter what I wrote, even if it was crap, I just wrote, I just wrote. And in 2003, I wrote my first 50,000K novel, but I hand wrote it. So it took me two or three months to write it. Um, but when I once I got a computer, courtesy of my mother, you know, shout out to mom, father, um, typing it became much easier. Yeah. And I could type up 1,600, 1,700 words a day. I'm just impressed by the technical practice that you have in terms of writing words to page. You know, your thoughts turn into screenplays, your thoughts turn into books. You've put a lot of time behind being a writer. Yes. um, Writing, uh, once I, I was living in Texas, and when I moved, I lived in Texas for a year, and I couldn't, I was like, we ha- I lost a job because they found out I had bipolar disorder. And it, even though it's against the law to yeah. fire someone who has a disability because they have a disability, right. Texas is a right-to-work state, so they can fire you for any reason. Oy vey. Mm-hmm. 
And so I moved back to Kentucky with my writing partner because we had set out to take on Hollywood, but we stopped in Texas because that's where we could afford to live. Yeah. Um, and and they said it was the third coast, or everybody claims to be the third coast if they're on a body of water <laughs> for Hollywood. Yeah. Um, we headed back home. We moved into an apartment. It's also, uh, I slept for like three days straight when we got back. And my mom set up everything for my treatment while I was asleep. And we got set up for disability. And um, it it has been, you know, I got on a food stamp card because I needed it. Sure. You know, it's like... I could not hold a job. I tried. I tried. Customer service, it was always a disaster. It was always a disaster for me. And I wanted to work. It's not a matter of not wanting to have a regular day job. Um, writing is my sanity. Um, and I've always dreamed of being a writer. And I've always dreamed of wanting to make movies. And I mean, I watch the Oscars every year. Yeah, same. And every year. And I'm like, now I, I go to, um, you had Ron Podell on, and because uh, he's how I found out about you guys. Oh, nice. Um, Shout out to Ron. Thanks, Ron. Yeah, and he's amazing. The year I went to AOF and met him, uh, he won Writer of the Year. And I thought, I was lucky. I was winning. We, me and Missy won that year. We were there. We won best uh, best new writers at AOF. It wasn't that we were new to writing screenplays. It was that it was our first year at Action on Film. Yeah, and I really, you know, I've introduced my cousin who also struggles with bipolar disorder. And um, she she's much younger. She's my age. Right. She was my age. She's suffering with, she's not 43. I just turned 43 two days ago. Yeah, happy birthday. Probably, yeah. And we went to AOS, and AOS and Indie Gathering are like home festivals for us now. I have to save. I have to raise money. If I didn't write, I'd probably be nuts. Basically, um, I had a, my therapist here say the most so people who succeed who have bipolar disorder find a way to channel that energy that comes with it. And writing novels is therapeutic for me. It's like if I write a chapter, I go. My goal is to write seventeen hundred words every day on the the book I'm oh. working on, or to get at least three pages on a script. But even then, there's a difference. If I'm writing a book, I'm much more chill and relaxed than say if I'm writing a screenplay. I took. I've had one screenwriting workshop, and it was. Two days, and it was from Michael Haig, and it was me and my writing partner, Melissa Goodman, and we read a book called How to Write the Screenplay of Your Heart in 21 Days. I think it's Vicki King who wrote it. Um, we wrote several screenplays. I wouldn't show those early screenplays to anybody, but I think in a way we benefited from our 20s of writing bad screenplays because nobody told us we were doing it wrong. We got to write how we wanted to write. And then whenever I got my first book published and worked with an editor, I wrote, we co-wrote a script called Bounty Hunter and it won several awards and including our first one in 2013. And it won second place at Indie Gathering, and it's been nominated several times at AOS and Hollywood Dreams. Mm -hmm. and so we've been blessed. Um, collectively, between our scripts, our music videos, our documentaries, and our short films, we've won over 60 awards since 2014. 
So you, among the other things that you've written, was the script that you submitted to us, which is why we have right. you on the show today, Rise, uh, your story of a world gone wrong and uh, the, the, the beginning sparks of a revolution to try to end this world gone wrong. That You know, you talked about a lot of your inspirations of things, Gladiator being an inspiration and uh, Daniel Craig's work playing James Bond. I feel like there's maybe a bit of a Handmaid's Tale inspiration in this script. You know, that I hadn't read Handmaid's Tale, but I knew what Handmaid's Tale was about. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote it, it's one that that script has it won it's won awards everywhere it's gone. Um, I wrote it. Um, it was very dark. I started it off as a book. Um, it was a, I started writing it the night of the two thousand sixteen election. Wow. Okay. And I was not handling it very well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And neither. I needed to channel something. I need, it was like, how do I cope with this? How do I process this? Well, I tried to write the novel and I had to back away from the novel because the novel was incredibly bleak and incredibly dark. And it was triggering me. All these things were triggering my bipolar disorder. And I was, so I decided to write the script and it was the same way with the script. I could only go so far with it because it, it seemed like it came to a natural beat whenever they all escape. And I was like, I can't force myself to go any further. Code Missy, I said, I can't go any further with this one. Yeah. Um, the remnants of Rise live on in The Guardian. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so it's evolved. But Rise was probably a very, it was probably one of my best, it was, it was probably one of our best efforts. So so when you guys had the story, how did you take that, which, you know, you write so many words a day. How did you take that and compress it into a 30-page short? You know, I, I don't know. I just, it's, um, the best way to put it is um, we we write, only so far as we can see each day. Like, I take a pass at it, she'll take a pass at it. And then we go back and forth with it until we get it to a place where we both really think it's a good story. Um, All I had were the characters in my head. I had the main character, and I wrote it with the idea that I was gonna write a, that we were gonna write a feature and an actor, actors we had worked with on a short called, called Broken, we were going to hire them to play the lead. But it, be quick, it quickly became obvious that this was going to be effects and it was going to have all this stuff. And it was just basically my emotions coming out on the page for mm. the first draft. Yeah. Okay. So and we- I'm a panster, so... It's just, it's like, I'm not even thinking. It's like, it's just, I'm almost channeling it. I write at least on a script, it's at least three pages a day. Scripts are different than books. Books, it's a chapter a day. Scripts, it's a, at least one scene that or three pages. Okay. We should, you know, I feel like we should probably let the audience in on this script a bit. Yeah. Uh, we're going to lead a, read, a, if you don't mind, a little selection uh, from your script, Rise, here to give the audience a little taste of uh, your, what you've uh, what you've put down on this. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Hang on one second. So this is, uh, this is Rise. We have met Max and Michaela at this point. They are a former couple yep. who are sort of having to be reunited, Max rescued Michaela from this it's a it's slave auction yeah except it's not even an auction it's a prison it's a holding cell right women are being held as slaves essentially cattle uh, and Max has sort of gone on this rescue mission to get her out and she's trying to remember uh what led up to this point because there's been things have been very traumatic and he's sort of trying to let her remember and not force on her the fact that he knows they used to have this relationship right it's a very sort of post-apocalyptic like i said there i feel like there's a bit of an inspiration uh handmaid's tale vibe to it right and i think that sort of gets us to yeah, where that sets we're us at. up yeah. so i will be reading for michaela jack is reading for max and frank our favorite frank hi frank is gonna be reading all of our stage directions 
I am the favorite Frank. Oh. And and we should point out, uh, in terms of the way these roles are written, Max is written as a black man, which I am not. And Michaela is an uh, an Asian woman, which I am not. I'm not exactly sure where she's from, though. Yeah, I don't know if it gets any more specific than that. We can okay. ask Amy here in a second. When we but, get back to it. So this is where we're at. Uh, Max has just rescued Michaela, and we're starting to see the beginnings of this attempt at a revolution. Interior, bedroom, later. Michaela wakes again. Summoning all of her strength, she gets out of bed and heads towards the kitchen where there is the sound of a coffee pot percolating and Max moving around. She gingerly makes her way through the small room, leaning hard to the wall and taking a small photograph framed of she and Max slow dancing by a fire. It captures an incredibly intimate and private moment between them. A look of recognition registers in her eye. She touches the photo and her hand lingers at it. Music plays. Tears glisten in her eyes. She grasps the photo in her hand and carries it into the kitchenette. Interior, kitchenette, day. Max looks over from where he stands, peeking out the blinds. He shuts them. She lowers to her seat and pushes the photograph across the table to him. Tell me why, in a house where you lived with and loved another family, you kept this. His fingertips linger at it. Some things you try to forget and move on. Others leave a mark on you, and you can't move on. Why can't you forget that you want to? Max stares off into the distance. The sound of a woman begging off screen, children crying, the sound of rapid gunfire, and little girls screaming in pain. Max looks back to Michaela. I don't feel like confessing anything. We all have things we want to forget, Max. There are things I could do without remembering. Then I look at this picture, and I can't remember the dance. But I remember I felt. I remember how you felt. I remember that these people were falling in love. And I don't know if that woman exists anymore. You talk of me being a revolutionary. And all I see here is happiness. And I don't know if I'll ever know that luxury again. Loving you is something that was as natural as breathing. Something that even in my long search for the resistance leader that I couldn't forget loving you. I couldn't forget that passion. And your family? Their blood is on my hands. Did you kill them? No. No, but... Did you stand before them and gun them down? No, but... But you feel like you failed to protect them. That as their husband and father, you should have been able to save them. Tell me you don't remember someone from your past who could have been saved if only we lived in a world where women were valued as more than servants to men, to powerful white men's base desires. Tell me you don't remember, and I'll call you a liar. Michaela stands. Then call me a liar because I don't even remember my life before now, let alone the specifics of who I could have saved and who I was forced to watch die. Max turns away. I could fill in the blanks, but like I said, some things are best left forgotten. I know your name and mine. I know how we once felt about one another. And I can tell, no matter where your journey has taken you, you haven't forgotten me. But I can't remember you. I can't remember anything. He looks at her, his features softening. Go rest. Know that you're safe and that here no harm will come to you. Michaela goes, leaves the kitchenette. In her haste, she has left the photograph behind. Max touches it and closes his eyes and sighs. And scene. That's really beautiful. Amy, there's a cool thing in, I I made a note of it, it's specifically on page seven in that script. Thank you for that, by the way. Yes, thank you. Oh, Oh, that's beautiful. That little snippet changes me. There's a real specific moment. Uh, The idea of memory plays a big role, specifically in that discussion that the two of them are having there on page seven. And I think there's, there's an interesting dichotomy there in that Michaela doesn't remember things and Max doesn't want to. And the idea of wanting to forget is interesting depending on where you're at on whether you remember something or not. Yeah, you know your own your own experiences filter into filter into things. Um, you know, there's certain things with my past that there's actually time missing. When I was a, a kid, where I can remember going to sleep one night and not waking up until the following Monday. 
And there's like literally, I can remember going to bed and not remembering what happened. And it's just, I don't want to know. You know, it's, it's, is it so bad that it would be better not to know? Or would it be, you know, I don't want to know. What I do remember is bad enough. What I don't remember is like, I don't, it's like Pandora's box. If you open that box, you know, who knows, who knows what's in there? Yeah. Well, man, that, I, I that's feel like, a hard place to be. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that you could, like from somebody on the outside looking in, like me, I, I think my natural reaction would be, well, what, of course you want to know things, but uh, Amy, you've, your experience is so unique to you that you're the only one that can make that sort of a decision for yourself. Yeah. And, you know, you set it up, you set that thought up very strongly in the world that you've created in Rise, where they are dealing with high stakes consequences and high stakes choices. And you have a character coming out of her past into what the now is and another character trying to coax her into being this revolutionary into making a change and helping the change happen. Because ultimately, there is a huge revelation where the characters are trying to create a huge basically a problem to light things on fire and and showcase how bad things have gotten inspire inspire people to to rise up take action yeah you know it's funny once i write a script and once it's done i usually walk away from it and don't look at it again because it's like i'm channeling something Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to go back and look at it rise especially rise is a hard one because it was so dark and usually my work for a lot of people who read my work say there's hope there's always hope in it and it's very difficult to see the hope in a piece as dark as rise Mm -hmm. so you be you've worked out 30 pages of this and if you're used to writing longer form stories, have you sort of worked out a, is there a, a more of a backstory? Have you planned out sort of where this whole thing is going? Well, like I said, the remnants of Rise went oh, right. on in The Guardian. Right. And I'm, I'm writing that as a, I'm scripting that as a television series. Mm-hmm. And I've written a sizzle treatment in the first four episodes. And I'm on the fifth episode that we're co-writing and then I'm also writing a novel while I'm writing that so yes I do mm-hmm. know and actually the hope made it in there good that, that's got but, does that does that help you knowing that the hope did work its way in there eventually yeah but I'm still scared because yeah. working in the faith-based industry there are certain there are certain elements that wouldn't be acceptable to them. So I have to determine, is it worth walking down that road or is it, or is it going to be a project that just sits on the shelf because it's too faith-based for the mainstream and not faith-based enough for the faith-based community. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Kind of in the middle there. Yeah. Yeah. That's the day. It's a good, it's a good project. So, but, uh, you know, I have to decide. I'm at that point because uh, an agent has agreed to look at the book proposal and the book proposal is written. My time, one thing I did grasp early on, what came first for me was being able to pitch my project. Pitching a project has never been difficult for me. Writing a synopsis has never been difficult for me. It's the craft that is harder. People often struggle with it in reverse. They're usually able to write a a pretty decent book and then struggle with putting a synopsis together or, or, or the log line. Well, given your track record, definitely, you know, you've, you have, you've had a number of successful books. We talked about the three deals you got in one year. It seems like you just reached a point where you were really able to lean into what your experience is. And I would imagine that that aligned a bit with some of the, you know, your triumphs going through your own process of your mental illness and working through that with the professionals that you've had in your life. Yeah. Um, I'm lucky. I've got a couple of industry professionals looking at my letters to Daniel Scripps, my and Missy's uh, letter to Daniel Scripps, 
and um, I've got I've got interest in the faith-based community in the Guardian, but it's a matter of finding, you know, yeah, it's a nice script, yeah, you're good, but if you're not making it, then what use are you to me? You know? Yeah. I'm on to the next. Right. Sure. You know, I'll do things to promote my project, the people are a part who are a part of them. I have no, I'll do that all day long. I've, you know, I've succeeded a lot in spite of what's happened. I had three agents who lied to me and they were all local. They were all in the state of Kentucky. And, and I, Missy said, if you get an agent, they need to come to you or you need to go to someone who you need to vet <laughs> and not be their first client. So trust is always sort of a big thing when you're trying to accomplish producing something or publish a written work. And you've, you, you mentioned your, your writing partner, Melissa. I, I, I don't know if we've talked to too many people that have like a definite regular working relationship writing partner. What was it like building the level of trust? And, and what it, you said you guys kind of go back and forth. What is your like working relationship to create yeah. the things you've made? Okay, well... A lot of times, like, you don't hear on the phone now. Sometimes I'll be at festivals without her. Here's the deal. I'm on disability, so what I have is time, and what I like is money. And what she likes is time, and she usually helps me with the money. So I'm often the face of our writing partnership. And people often get the wrong idea that she's not doing anything. Mm -hmm. But, see, she and I know, and we go back. I've known her since we worked together at a bookstore when we were 21 and 22 years old. So she's been with me through the worst of the worst. We've gone hungry. We've, you know, it's like... We've had a car destroyed. We were we're more like sisters now. And she was my she was my principal caregiver during that first year that I was trying to get stable. And then when we moved back, we chose to stay to share an apartment, and we didn't kill each other. But <laughs> sharing an apartment with someone who has a severe mental illness is not an easy road to walk. And she chose to walk it, and so that's why. We trust each other to the degree we do. We've just lived a certain amount of life that I feel comfortable handing her my stuff to read. And we used to work solo. And then on our novels, we work solo. And on our screenplays, we work together. And we both make very different sounds individually with our writing. But when we come together, it's a little bit, it's a whole unique, different uh, our screenplays are wholly different from our uh, novels. So when I say I, I really mean we. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. I think that's really cool. I don't like I said. I, I, don't, I can't remember us having a guest on that's got like a regular, Writer. steady writing writing partner like that. I mean, Bill Baber and Scott. Crosby, oh, that's true. They write. Yeah, they're together. writing partners. Yeah, yeah, of course. And they bounce things off. But that relationship is so special and nuanced. Yeah. You know, and that's the beauty of collaboration. Yeah. Where things change when you allow them to be changed. Together. Well, and having such a, per- Amy, I would imagine that you have such a personal, I mean, there's such a years of, of, of a rooted personal connection with this person that makes it that much more, everything that much more important. Yeah. Yeah. Amy, it's been beautiful talking about your journey tonight, um, I guess for listeners, whenever they're listening. Yeah, it could it's, be the morning. It could be the morning. <laughs> Hopefully it is. <laughs> it's been beautiful talking with you about this. And I appreciate you sharing um, your history, your current life, and also your script, Rise With Us, on Script Shop. Well, well, thank you. Thanks very much. Amy, if uh, people do want to get in touch with you, uh, if they're interested in your work, what's the best way for them to do that? You can reach me on my Facebook page, um, Amy Lee McCorkle, and as long as the haircut, not the book cover, uh, <laughs> then there you can reach me on my Twitter account, Amy L. McCorkle, at Amy L. McCorkle, or you can reach me um, at my, if you are interested in my mental health stuff, go to my Letters to Daniel Facebook page, and if you are just interested in me as an author, just use my profile, my Amy Lee McCorkle page. Awesome. Great. Amy, thanks for taking the time. You're a busy lady. (laughs) 
Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Wow. I, I Go ahead. I was going to say that I feel like so much of her work must be, like, obviously everybody's work is very personal. personal. But there, I mean, from what she was telling us about between letters to Daniel and even this, having it be based in feelings that she was having at the time when she was writing it, that's that's a very, you're, you're letting people into yourself. Well, that, that takes yes. a very special breed of person. Yeah, it does. A very honest yeah. person. Somebody who can just, like, allow that honesty to be her truth, yeah. to share that truth, to put that truth down, you know, three pages a day, 10,000 yeah. words a day, whatever it is. That lady, she's got a lot of practice exercising that honesty well, out. Yeah, and we've, and we've talked to people before about what their process is, if they have like a regular routine. And some people, if they're not full-time writers, they try to fit it in where they can or they've right. sort of forced themselves into a routine. Yep. I mean, this girl's in the gym working that muscle yeah. every day. Yeah, that's, in, that's impressive. I think it's super cool. Yeah. Uh, if you've been at the gym, the metaphorical gym, that is. Gyms. You're welcome. Oh, tell me about it. Nobody. Yeah, no, metaphors are great. Gyms. <laughs> yeah. Gyms. Okay, I got to get back in the gym gym Ugh. mindset. If you have been at the metaphorical brain gym. Screenwriting gym. Sitting at a keyboard and, and working something gyms. out. Yes, then send us your scripts. Yes, please. Uh, you can do that on scriptshopshow.com slash submit or also on Film Freeway. Look us up, Script Shop Show. And don't forget that you can catch us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. On Twitter, Jack is Script Shop Jack, and I'm your bestie, Westie. Mm-hmm. And uh, we love talking to you. So, you know, give us a shout out. Leave us a review. Uh, give us a rating. We look forward to talking to you. Yeah, Frank, did we? Uh, we're, we're still, I, I, we're you know, we're still working out all of our little kinks from being away. Well, and I don't know if this is going to be a regular thing of us checking in with Frank, Frank at the end to, to sure, see if we said everything right. See if Dad right. says we're okay. Yeah. It's a requirement now. <gasps> <gasps> Script shop Dad over here. Big Papa Frank's in on it. Uh, Frank, Frank, how do we do? Uh, it sounds good. I, I would recommend people check out the Independent Film Festival. I would recommend that as well. Independentfilmfest.org. Frank, that's such a good call. Thanks, Frank. And until next week, friends, that's a wrap. Script Shop was created by Allison West, hosted by Allison West and Jack Crumley, produced by Frank Steele. Thanks to iHeartMedia Cincinnati for use of their studio. Intro music, Retro Soul by bensound.com. Outro music by purple-planet.com. Special thanks to all our guests. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. 